Hi, this is Dan Corver, uh, pastor here at Dalton Hill Baptist Church. <clears throat> we're a small Baptist church located in Owasso, Oklahoma. We're small enough to know you, but we're big enough to serve you and for you to serve as well. Our vision is to rescue, restore, and return to service. Rescue a non-believer or a believer who has been hurt or is lost. Restoring them to Christ in fellowship with other believers with the desire that they in turn will help others along their way. Anyways, we've gone through a series, if you remember, on uh, Paul. Also on the, I think it's four weeks from now, Tung P will be here. And uh, he's going to, we went ahead and gave him he'll Sunday school and the church service. So he'll have it. He can answer a lot of the questions. Immediately after church, he's supposed to leave. He has to be in South Tulsa to be at a mission uh, conference deal to speak at. So not that he's being rude, but I've got to wheel him out of here and... <laughs> drive him down there so anyway uh, Bud right now and uh, Nancy and uh, Keith are in India presently speaking uh, those people if you have noticed uh, India has now been changed to a restricted nation because of the persecution that's now taking place against Christians in India so it's uh, it's uh, quite a risk for them to come down for that training so, uh, anyway we've been going through our series uh, on Paul and the uh, we're on part 12. Getting close to the end. Some of you are praising the Lord, right? <laughs> At least it won't be like Donald Gray Barnhouse. He spoke in the book of Romans for over 15 years. So. The, uh, today I'd like first thing, you know, to think about having a tough hide and a tender heart. How many of you find that you need that? Anybody? When you're dealing with criticism? And it's not easy. I think one of our greatest presidents was Abraham Lincoln. And he was asked one time to, because he certainly got his fair share of criticism. And he was asked how he handled criticism. And basically, in, in a paraphrase, he said, I do the very best I can with the means that I have. and Do all I can and leave the results. If the results aren't good enough, 10,000 angels couldn't save me. And I think that's for a lot of us. We just do the best that we can with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's think about the uh, the opposition. Paul certainly had opposition, and so I think about some different things we look at. First of all, promised opposition. You remember in John sixteen and verse thirty three, the last verse of the book of John. You remember Jesus said that you know that He has come to overcome the world and has given us peace. But you remember He said, "But in in the world you will have what tribulation." Tribulation. If you remember when Acts chapter 9, verse 16, when Ananias was going to Paul and you know, Ananias was questioning whether he should, and remember God, the Holy Spirit, told Ananias, He's a promised instrument of mine, and he will suffer many things for my name's sake. Now, how would you like to be promised before you ever came to know a Christian, you're going to suffer greatly? How many of you are ready to sign up? But you look in the book of James, you're promised tribulation. You look in First Peter, you're promised tribulation. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that we are going to... Did Paul experience any? You think about it in Second Corinthians chapter... You, uh, in verse chapter 11, 23 and 26, you remember the shipwrecks, which we weren't even told about all of them, other than he had three, but we weren't even told about all of them. You think about how many times was he given the... 39 lashes by the Jews. How many times was he beaten with rods, which was the Roman punishment? He had five of one, three of the other. Uh, often people would be would die because of it. How can you imagine going through that that many times? 
as well as being beaten up by robbers and, and uh, lost at sea and everything else. So you think about it, he had plenty of them. But I think it's interesting in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in the book of Acts, but in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9, Paul said, the ministry, the, the doors are wide open, but there is much adversity. What would you and I focus on? Adversity. <laughs> Seriously. Are we going to focus on the opportunity of ministry? Or are we going to focus on the opposition? And I think it's very, very important for us to really contemplate that opportunity and opposition often go hand in hand. You rarely will have one without the other. And so, you know, you think about it. Thomas uh, Edison invented the light bulb, right? Or, or actually developed it. How many times is it estimated that he tried and failed? I've heard as many as 10,000. You know what his answer was every time? I just found another way that didn't work. That's amazing. So think about it. Here we have this. There's going to be promise. So I think what we can ask is, what's my attitude and actions with criticism? Is it an opportunity or we quit? I think a lot of times people quit. They get opposition and they quit. What's the perspective of Paul and other heroes of faith? We've looked at these before because it really helps us. In order for you to understand how Paul gets through criticism, understand his perspective. You remember when Paul, and we saw it a couple of weeks ago in Galatians 1 and verse 10, Paul said, if I was trying to please men, what? I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So the perspective is, I'm trying to please God. I'm not trying to please men. And I think it's critical for us to come to that. Uh, second one you have, you think about it, where did, was, G, or was Paul's eyes on? You remember in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, remember the heroes of faith are all in chapter 11? Get to chapter 12, he said, these are such great cloud of witnesses. And remember it tells you who, in verse 1, remember they've, uh, they rejected the entanglements. They have rejected disbelief. They're running the race. And in verse 2 it says they're fixing their eyes on what? Jesus. Okay, fixing their eyes on Jesus. Where are most of our eyes placed in, during criticism and difficulty? Seriously. Ourselves. On ourselves, on the opposition, on the problems, while we can't do things, or whatever. And I think it's important. Moses, I can't do it. Gideon, I can't do it. Because their eyes were on themselves. So you have the perspective of Paul, he pleasing God and not man. He also had a placing our eyes on Christ and not on his circumstances and so on. Also in the Hebrews 12, you remember to get to 25 and 26 talking about Moses? Same thing was true of Paul when it said that he, he forgot about, the, didn't pursue the riches of this world, but pursued the riches that were in heaven, the eternal reward. Did Moses give up any riches? Yes. I mean, you think about the riches that he gave up because he was had the perspective of the eternal reward. And so I think when we look at it, it really makes a difference when we look at Paul, his perspective. He had please God, not man. He fixed his eyes on Jesus and he fixed his eyes on eternity, his perspective. And I think it's interesting where our eyes are fixed on. Most of us, our eyes are fixed on the one negative thing or whatever might have happened that day. 
I found this from Swindoll and he was quoted as good friend David Roper and I think I changed a few words but on criticism see if you would agree with this criticism often comes when you least need it how many times does it come when you're exhausted criticism usually comes when you least deserve it okay I think a lot of times that's very true too the third one, criticism normally comes from people who are least qualified to give it. <laughs> you know, you know, how, many, how many of us are armchair quarterbacks or coaches? I mean, you can tell the coach what all he should have done. You don't know how many hours and everything else that took place. I mean, it's amazing how many times. I remember I had one... Uh, parent come up to me and I said I was going to play the daughter and we got in the middle of a game it was really tight and I didn't put her in like I promised her. He comes up to me, he was furious after the game. And I told him, I said, I'm sorry, yes I told you, I just completely forgot. You know for the rest of the time that man never spoke to me again. An honest mistake. <coughs> We were playing well, we won the game, it was a tight deal, and I just simply forgot. Uh, it's interesting how you have it. I think another one, that's why in Proverbs uh, 27, 7, it says, Faithful are the, are the wounds of what? A friend. A friend, because the friend what? They know you, and the honest truth coming forth, and so on. So often criticism comes, and people don't know half of what's going on. And that's part of why... I'm, when we look at all the stuff going on around the world or anything else, we're not privy to so much information that's out there. We have to be very critical, or very careful with our criticism. We don't know all the truth. The last one they mentioned that of these four, you remember, when you least need it, you least deserve it from least qualified. Criticism frequently comes in the form when it's least helpful. You know, when you give criticism, is it there to help or is it just there to catch you up? And I think it's interesting, remember in Proverbs 27, 17, iron does what? Sharpens iron, so it's there for benefit. Same thing in Ephesians uh, 4 and verse 29, you remember it said, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but what? One that edifies and gives grace to the hearer. Colossians 4, same thing. So when we give criticism, is it, do we really know the situation, and is it to help? At the right place, right time, so on. Uh, so often we're giving criticism in the wrong place, the wrong way, and so on. So think about it, a uh, pattern of uh, criticism and so on. Let's go ahead and look at Paul. Then. Look over in Proverbs 24. Let's see how well he does here. Been going through this. And if you remember, he's been arrested, uh, falsely accused. And so now he's uh, the... Uh, Acts 24, starting in verse 1. <laughs> Acts 24. There you go. Pattern set forth by Paul when dealing with critics. The first part in verse 1 to verse 9 is what I call uh, priming the pump. You ever seen uh, lawyers and attorneys and stuff priming the pump? Let's look at it, starting in verse 1 to 9. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some of the elders, with a certain attorney named Tertullius, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullius began accusing him, saying to the governor, Remember, who's the governor? Anybody remember? Felix. Okay. Felix takes over from Pilate in 52. 
now, a little bit of background. Felix, his brother was a freedman who was a friend of Claudius the emperor. So Felix got this job because of his brother. In fact, when people write about him, they say he has the power of a king and the mentality of a slave. He was brutal. He's the one that went in earlier and had the ex-high priest Jonathan killed in the temple, which resulted in a lot of uh, political murders and so on. Very lot, a great deal of unrest. That's the background. Now notice what Tertullius has to say. Since we have through you attained much peace, since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way, in every, uh, in everything, in every way. Most excellent, Felix. We are all thankful, and all of us want to do what. <clears throat> But I may not weary you any more. I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. You stop and you think about it. He's kind of doing a little flattery, isn't he? Everything he's saying is... And how often does flattery work with people? Notice now you have false accusations, starting in notice in verse 5. We have found this man a real pest, a fellow who stirs up dissensions among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him, and we wanted to judge him according to our laws, but uh, Lysias, the governor, came along, and with much violence took him out of our hands. Any of that happen? No. So here you butter him all up, and then you give all these false accusations, and then keep reading us, order his accusers come before you, by examining yourselves concerning all these matters, you'll be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse you. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting these things were so. So what does the majority say? So you're up here, and they just buttered you up all these nice words, and then give all these false accusations, and the majority of the people are saying what? And you know, remember, here you are, and you're new on the scene, and are you wanting to try to please or appease these people who are very disruptive, causing a lot of problems. Now, how would you feel if you're Paul about right now? How would you respond? I think it's interesting you look at it. Do I desire the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Isn't that what we're supposed to be saying in court? Do I follow the majority? How many of us are influenced by flattery? Those are all things. Notice what Paul does, <clears throat> pleading his case. Notice in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responding, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge of this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. What's his attitude? How many of us would say that? How many of you would have said this is a kangaroo court? Seriously, I'm thinking about it. Here's his critics. He doesn't say the truth about the person over him who's judging him. What good would that do? We go on and look a little more. See, he has this personal attitude. He didn't respond emotionally or get caught up. How many times when you and I get attacked personally do we respond the same way? Paul's just got respond, got personally attacked with false statements. He doesn't respond that way. Notice also the plain facts starting in 11. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself, did they find me carrying on dis- 
discussion of anyone <coughs> with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can I prove to you the charges of which they now are, are accusing me. Yeah. All right. Good attitude. They have no evidence. There is no evidence. I mean, that's amazing to have it. Keep going a little bit further. He just gives the, the facts. But this I admit to you, according to the way which they, are, they call a sect, I do serve God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and with the writing of the prophets. Having hope in God, with these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In this view, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and man. He gives them the facts with a clear conscience. The problem is he believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they do not. And he's presenting it. So it's interesting when you look at it, when you have this, given this clear conscience, if you remember, a clear conscience, also, Paul, you remember, writes in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 4 and verse 4 and 5, you remember he said, I have a clear conscience, but that's not good enough. Because in verse 5, he said, God will judge the motive. We can have a clear conscience, but it doesn't mean our motive is right or anything else. We can manipulate our conscience. So here you have, he's pleading his case, his personal attitude, he gives his plain facts. Most it's interesting, he points to the source of the real problem. It's interesting. In verse 18, notice it said, uh, Now after 17, after years I came with bringing alms to my nation and present offerings. Remember he brought them from the churches of the Gentile churches, bringing it down to the, Gent uh, the Jewish church. After several years I came and bringing them, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you to make accusations if they should have anything against you. Okay, the ones who accused him, where are they? They're not there. They're not there. When he actually, a few years later from now, he's going to be in Rome, the reason he gets let go is because nobody came. And so the accusers should have been there, they're not. So here you have just hearsay of all these people. Where are my accusers? They're not here. So he gives the plain uh, absentee. Notice he pleads then in verse 20 and 21. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they have found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them. The resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before today. Did he present the facts? Did he get emotionally charged up? Did he attack them? And what do most of us do? Gentle answer turns away wrath and so on. I think it's important. He simply presents the case. And I think it's interesting. All of us get put on trial at different times. And our, ad, our attitude makes such a difference. And how it, we respond, what our words are, our actions are, our purpose. Paul is simply presenting the facts before him. They then, you know, I think it's interesting. But, you know, how, how would most of us respond? How many of you have ever been falsely accused? You ever been falsely accused by believers? You know, they, it really can hurt. It can, and that's what causes so many people to quit churches and so on, is by criticism. But notice Paul, how he responds is so beautiful. Let's keep going a little bit further. His patient conversation, patiently converses in 22. But Felix, having more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, well, Lister, remember, that's the commander who then arrested him. 
He wants to get the other side. Now, that's good on his part. I will decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody. He then have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So he's under arrest, but people could come and go to see him. Paul keeps ministering. But remember, we're thinking about what's happening. Some days later, Felix arrives with Drusilla. Now, who is she? Now, when you look at it, notice Felix and Drusilla is in verse 24. Look over in 25 in verse 3. He's also going to give a defense before Agrippa and Bernice. Can anybody tell me anything about these people? Drusilla and Bernice are sisters. They're Herod's daughters. Felix is living in an inappropriate relationship with Drusilla. Agrippa also is living in an illicit relationship with his sister. Now, are those things against the law? Yes. Could Paul have certainly brought those things up and should the Jewish leadership a lot of things Paul could have said, but they were of no benefit to what's taking place. What most of us do, I think, the tendency, when somebody's shooting at us, what do we do? We shoot back at them. And I think it's interesting. So notice then they come down, who is Jewish in verse 24, and sat before Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. Every time Paul, remember what's his calling? He's a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Every time he gets an opportunity, he speaks, irregardless of who they are. And notice, and as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present. When I find time, I'll summon you. Maybe a little bit of conviction? What do you think? Paul speaks the truth. He doesn't matter who they are. He speaks the truth. Notice in 26, the second thing... At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to sin and quite often and converse. So here you have it. Notice it's also going to be for two years. Now, how would you like to be Paul? You're held in prison. The guy calls you forward, and you talk to him, and you keep talking to him about the Lord and everything else. He sends you back. He calls you. You go and you speak to him and all the others around about the Lord, and he gets sent back. And the guy's wanting you to really do what? Give him money? Or compromise and say, I won't talk about Jesus anymore, or I won't talk about the resurrection, or whatever it might be. How would you be feeling about this time with the critics and anything else? What are you thinking if you were, what would you be saying to the Lord about now? I have done nothing wrong. Why am I here? But what's interesting, how many people are hearing salvation message and truth about scripture that wouldn't hear it if somebody wasn't in this particular situation you talk about here you have a guy who has control over your life and you're telling him the truth it's interesting what do you think about judgment to come how would you like to have a guy who has your life in your hand and you talk to him about judgment to come Paul didn't mince words. He spoke the truth. And I think it's interesting when you looked at it. Uh, He didn't compromise. He didn't quit. He didn't become bitter. I mean, after two years, I mean, that would be getting a little old. 
And uh, notice, I think in 27, you, you'll notice after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus. And wishing to the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So he's wanting to help him out unfairly, and he leaves him in prison. Does that ever make you think about Joseph? So you think about it. Here you have this deal that you have. How did Paul handle the... Uh, the uh, he had a tough hide. They were accusing him of all kinds of things, and he doesn't respond in the same manner. But you have a tender heart in the fact that he responds, and he speaks about Christ, and he's trying to lead each one of them to Christ. So much so, when you get into the next chapter, he even will do the same thing with Agrippa, and does the same thing with them. And I think it's important for all of us then, so when you think about how Paul handled it, are we going to get opposition? Yes. We're going to get it. That's promised. What's the perspective of Paul? He wants to please who? He's looking at what? Eternity. He's also looking at eternal reward. He's keeping his eyes on Jesus. Not on other people. The pattern is criticism going to come when you least expect it? Yes. Is it coming you don't deserve it? Yes. Will it come by people who aren't qualified to give it? Yes. Will it come by the most unhelpful ways? Yes. We already know it, but how often is it still hurtful? And so I think what then we need to do is basically people are, whenever they go before, they're going to pump the prime. Uh, prime the prime. You know, we've all seen that happen. Uh, and people do it all the time. Uh, when we have some different meetings, there's one in particular individual from another at the refinery environmental meetings we get there's always one that I mean he is up there priming the pump like you would believe and it's amazing that's how he's moving up in the company but it's kind of but that's why he he does but I think it's interesting Paul when he pleads his case he keeps the right attitude he stays with the facts he doesn't attack the people personally but he tries to lead them to Christ and that's what we need to do too with criticism uh, and I think what else he didn't mention, if you remember when Paul, uh, David, you remember when his son revolted against him? And he has the one guy, the critic, that's hollering at him all the time, and you remember his mighty men want to kill him? And what does he say? Let him speak. It could be God using him to give criticism for me to think about. How many times do we ever stop and say, okay, is there some grain of truth to what the critic is saying? They may not be saying it right. They may not be saying all the rest. But is there some truth that I can learn from? That's what we can look at. Friday. We'd love for you to come and visit with us and fellowship with us. We're located at 8263 North Owasso Expressway, which is on the east side of Highway 169 North, between 76th and 86th Street North. We have coffee and fellowship from 8.30 to 9 Sundays, followed by Sunday school for all ages from 9 to 9.45, and our Sunday morning worship service is from 10 to 11. We likewise have a Wednesday night service for all ages from 7 to 8. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, and in every way the Lord be with you all the time.